we have been talking about healing what is broken in our world, and, and I, I think we have to acknowledge that when we're talking about healing what's broken, uh, there's going to be some people who resent that idea, who are frustrated by our notion that things are broken. We're, we're essentially looking at this through the lens of Scripture and, and, and this biblical worldview and com- concluding that everything is broken. That nothing is really quite working the way that it's supposed to, and that, that we are all a part of that brokenness. That we, ha- we have been broken, and we are contributing to that brokenness. Um, but some people are going to take uh, offense at that. How dare you suggest that my choices, my, my life in some way is broken? Um, and is it presumptuous for us to assume that a thing is broken? And I think we have to acknowledge that sometimes it is. Sometimes it is presumptuous to assume that something is broken. Uh, uh, My family, for for many years, did work on the Navajo Indian Reservation. And one of the things that we become very aware of over the years is that on the Navajo Reservation, like many uh, Native American populations, the people... Uh, their children were often taken out of their homes and put in boarding schools. And in these boarding schools, their hair was cut off, their clothes were burned, they were not allowed to speak their native language. They were, the objective of these boarding schools was largely to westernize them, to basically uh, bring that sort of European uh, flavor uh, to their culture. And uh, the... This was motivated by sort of a Christian idealism, which is part of what makes it so frustrating, is that the the thought process here was that everything about this Native American culture is, it doesn't fit with our religious system. Of course, the religious system we were talking about was the European church. A European church, in all honesty, necessarily fit the Jewish system, and Jesus was Jewish. So importing our culture was the mistake. We made this this false assumption that we needed to bring our culture along and re-educate people in our culture in order for them to accept faith in Jesus Christ. And I think we have to acknowledge that these tragic errors like this occur when we make the mistake that our religion is the solution to the problem. Because religion is not the answer. Religion is not the fix. Religion is just the trappings. And efforts like this, and, 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 and I'll even acknowledge that these efforts were well-intended. Sometimes we, when we portray, uh, this, uh, watch some recent portrayals of this uh, on a television program where the, the people involved in one of these board, mission boarding schools were just evil people. I mean, they were just mean-spirited. And I don't think generally that was the case. On the Navajo Reservation, for instance, a lot of, uh, a lot of the people that we talked to, a lot of the people that we interacted with all the time, had a second set of parents. They had foster parents. Because there was this program, it was mostly... Um, it was mostly Mormon, because we worked in, in Utah, and so that was the dominant church influence there. M- most of these uh, uh, Navajo adults that we interacted with 
had their parents, and then they also had their Mormon uh, foster parents. Because there was a program for a long time that removed these children from their home and placed them in foster care in this Mormon home and sort of bring them up as Mormons. Uh, the thing is, uh, not many of them converted to Mormonism, but they all had kind of a warm place in their hearts, pretty much, for their foster parents. These families were basically good to them. Their intent was good. Their methodology, not so much. But even when our intent is good, we have to acknowledge that sometimes we do a lot of damage by focusing on the wrong things. And so on the Navajo reservation, for instance, the, the general consensus is if you're there as an outsider, particularly a white outsider, um, you need to work with the people for at least five years before anybody will trust you. And we found that generally to be the case. But even when we get it right, even when we don't make these tragic errors, even when we don't blow it, even when, we, even when we're focused on all the right things, even when we get it right, darkness will still resent and resist the light. And many people today reject the church because of judgment. Sometimes it's the very idea of judgment. Who is this God? Where does he get off judging me? The very idea that God will judge humanity. And they say, are you really saying if I don't fill in the blank that God will send me to hell? And I cringe whenever I hear that question. I cringe because it is such a reductionism, such an oversimplification of the gospel. Receive Jesus or go to hell is not the gospel message. That's not how that works. It disturbs me to hear that. It disturbs me even more to think that we as Christians have allowed that impression to persist in the culture. But even... Even if we get it right, some will resent the very notion of a God who judges humanity. Your God's supposed to be about love. What is this judgment for? Of course, for many people, it isn't so much about God's judgment, it's about our judgment. They're very concerned uh, with how these Christians are, are too judgy. Christians are judgmental. They're such hypocrites, maybe even Christians are hateful. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? People who don't know anything about the Bible will be able to quote this one verse, judge not lest you be judged. They'll know that one, right? And often, often, these people who are very concerned about how judgmental we are seemingly adopt behaviors with the intent to see how far they can go. Like, let me, let, let me just be as outrageous as possible, and then I'll just dare you to judge me. And then when you, when, when you say something critical, don't you judge me. We just play this game as a culture. Can I just tell you something? Oh, this, is, this is sort of radical. This is crazy. I don't know. 
in my experience, Christians are not really that judgmental. I mean, Christians are pretty quick to tell you that they're sinners. They're pretty quick to, to insert that into the conversation. I know I'm not perfect because we know we're not perfect. And the, and the reality is we know that there are people in our churches, you know, brother and sister better than thou, but the rest of us are as uncomfortable with them as the world is uncomfortable with them. We've all known the church lady. We don't particularly appreciate her. She's frustrating to us in the same way that she is to the world. We don't like judgmental people. We don't like people who think that they're better than us all the time. We don't like people who are extremely pious and need to tell us about it constantly. I don't think that Christian people are all that judgmental. I think that they uh, sometimes, sometimes look at people who are actively in the process of self-destruction. People who are making choices that we can look at and go, that is going to lead you down a path that is not good. And that is a form of judgment. But that's not a judgment that only Christians are susceptible to. Everybody, every human being looks at other human beings around them and goes, man, that ain't going nowhere. Those choices are going to get you in trouble. That's going to lead to a bigger mess. To dismiss all Christians based on the misbehavior of some is ironically pretty judgmental, isn't it? So perhaps, so perhaps, this is less about individual judgment. It's about the very idea that there is a system of morality that we can define simply by looking to Scripture, or looking to Christ. Because here, here's part of the problem with this whole judgment business. To hold a biblical worldview is to be at odds with most of the culture. That's all it takes. Sometimes when people are referring to Christians as judgmental, it's simply because we have a moral system, a moral code that we're holding ourselves accountable to. That in and of itself feels judgmental if you don't have any such code. This is a challenge for us. Because this may be all that it takes. Just, just believing that the righteousness that Jesus describes is in fact righteousness. This may be all that it takes for us to be labeled as judgmental hypocrites. And none of us like to be labeled as judgmental hypocrites. We don't like that accusation. We know people who really are that, and we don't like that. We don't like that attitude. We don't like that sinfulness. And so, in order to avoid this interpretation, in order to avoid, avoid this, this label that gets placed on us, some churches will reinterpret Scripture through the lens of culture. They say, culture doesn't like 
this biblical morality? Well, let's go back and reevaluate what the Bible says, and we'll come up with a different conclusion, sometimes doing some pretty severe theological gymnastics to make the Bible say what the culture would prefer it to say. And some churches simply retreat into themselves and wait for Jesus. And close the back doors because they have basically surrendered any hope of transforming lives. The goal becomes to isolate ourselves and survive. And if it's this dark, it means Jesus is probably coming soon anyway. So we'll just hunker down until he gets here. Well, look, we're, we're not trying to be some churches. We're trying to be missional churches. And the missional church seeks to follow the example of Jesus. And Jesus tells us we need to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to be engaged with it, but we need to be different from it. So we've been talking, I introduced these, these, these missional principles over the last few weeks, these mission strategies of Jesus. Mission strategy number six, speak the truth without compromise. And mission strategy number seven, manifest the love of God. And there is admittedly a natural tension between these two things. I'm going to speak the truth all the time under whatever circumstance. I'm just going to speak the truth the way that Christ, the way that Scripture has revealed it to me. That's what I'm going to say. But I'm going to say it out of a place of love. I'm going to say it because God loves you and God wants you to be saved. That's, that's my motivation. Jesus perfectly executes the natural tension between these two strategies. And though we are far from perfect in this regard, his example is the example that we seek to follow. That's what we want to do. How do we apply this to the subject of judgment? Now, those of you who were in my class on what happens when you die know that I spent uh, a considerable amount of time, years really, studying this subject of, of death and the afterlife and, and judgment and hell and all those, all those issues. And I have theories and things to share and uh, ideas and things that I've encountered and things that have changed my own belief about these things. You know that I have spent a lot of time uh, looking at this, considering this, studying this. As part of that study, uh, I remember early on I was reading some things, reading some books and things about hell, and, and, uh, and I contacted an old colleague of mine I said, okay, and he was in a sort of church plant situation. I said, how, how do you handle the subject of hell and judgment? He was really trying to be uh, an, in an evangelistic church, really wanted to reach unchurched people. I said, how do you handle the subjects of hell and judgment? What do you teach about those things? And he responded to me, he said, uh, he sent, sent me a, an email back. He said, oh, I never use judgment to intimidate people. I, I, I have to admit, I was, I was kind of offended by that response. Like, wh what exactly are you assuming here? Are you assuming that's what I was saying? I'm asking you this question about how you teach about hell and judgment, and your assumption is that I'm using hell and judgment to intimidate people into receiving Jesus? Uh, or that I think that you would do that? I don't think that you would do it. And I said as much. I wrote back to him and said, I, 
I'm certainly not assuming that that's what you would do. But there's this sense in which we, we, we have come to think about judgment in no other light. The only way that we could possibly be talking about judgment is if we're trying to scare people. The problem is that judgment is still a part of this narrative. There, we have to do something with it. We have to address it at some level. We, just, we can't just pretend that judgment isn't a part of the equation. Judgment is the reality of God bringing final, ultimate justice to the earth. Let's look at some of these passages. When we look at a uh, passage I referred to earlier is from Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2. It says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So here is a basic judgment principle. We will be judged by the standard of judgment that we employ. That in and of itself is enough for we as Christians to be very careful with the subject of judgment, to be wary of how it's applied. For some, however, this has come to mean apply no standard at all. Because if you apply a standard, that, that infers judgment. It's sort of the youth soccer model. Everybody gets a trophy. There, there, there's no standard. There's no, there's no, there's no winners and losers. After we really look at where this is coming from, when we really look at Matthew seven, is the last chapter in three chapters from the Sermon on the Mount. What are the first two chapters about? They're about true righteousness, perfect righteousness of God. Jesus is not saying drop any standard of righteousness that you, that you might have because otherwise you'll be perceived as judgmental. He's in fact championing righteousness, but saying you need to be careful because if you're a disciple, if you're, if you're literally pursuing the righteousness of Jesus Christ and your disposition towards other people lacks grace, then you'll be judged by that same standard. Now, in my experience, if you're actually pursuing the righteousness of Jesus, that's a very humbling process. That doesn't actually make us better than thou. It doesn't, it doesn't make us uh, more self-righteous. If anything, it causes us to question ourselves more. The more I grow in the Lord, the more humbling it is to stand before him. Well, then we get into a whole series of mixed messages that come from Jesus about the judgment. And we're just going to look at the ones in the Gospel of John this morning, because that's more than enough to confuse us. John 3.17, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But then in John 5, verse 22, when he's talking to the Jewish leaders, he says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So Jesus didn't come to judge but all judgment has been entrusted to him. 
And then in John 9, 39, he's talking about the Pharisees. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. But then in John 12, it seems to turn back again. He's talking to, uh, he's talking to leaders who secretly believe but wouldn't testify to their faith. He says, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. So what is going on? Well, first of all, we have to add a, a, a seventh mission priority to Jesus' mission that he speaks to in these passages, and that is prepare the world for judgment. See, so here's how this works. When Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago, he did not come to fulfill the judgment at that time, but he did come for the sake of judgment. And what does that mean? It means Jesus' ministry is about telling the truth, but telling that truth because of his love and because of his desire and the Father's desire to see everyone saved. But even as you tell that truth, hoping that people will be saved, you have to wrestle with the awareness that some or most will reject the truth and will refuse to be saved. This is the role of the prophet. Sometimes the prophet goes out to preach repentance so that the people repent. And sometimes the prophet goes out to preach repentance because the people will not repent. And he announces the coming judgment on the unrepentant. When you tell the truth, even when you tell the truth in love, tell the truth because you want to see people saved, both things will be real. Both things will come to pass. Some of the prophets were actually commissioned with this. They were told, nobody's going to listen to you, but you're going to preach my word anyway. You remember Jonah. Jonah's told to go to Nineveh tells the people of Nineveh to repent, and they actually do. And he's shocked. He's even angry about it. Why? Because as a prophet, he's not necessarily expecting the people to listen to the message. He's just expecting that God's judgment is going to come. And so he's chastised for his attitude about it because it's supposed to the message, regardless of whether it's heard or not, the message is supposed to come from a place of love. Jesus talks about this in terms of the wise and foolish builder, the one who hears and listens to my words. They're like the wise builder. They build on a solid foundation. When trouble comes, their house will stand. The one who doesn't listen to my words, when trouble comes, the house will break down and collapse. Peter talks about it in this way. He says Jesus is the cornerstone, but for those for whom he's not the cornerstone, he's the rock that makes them fall. The mission strategy remains the same. Truth spoken in love. But the truth will be a stepping stone 
for those who want to hear it, for some, and it would be a stumbling block for others. And so the truth that saves some will also become the measure by which the whole world will be judged. Jesus did not come into the world to judge or to condemn the world, but speaking the words of life, he nevertheless establishes the standard of judgment. He knows, despite his loving intent, that many will not be saved, but will reject the truth that he offers them. Now, Jesus does talk about judgment. He even uses some of the very bitter imagery that we have come to associate with judgment. But I kind of just point out that Jesus' harshest words are reserved for the religious. The patience and compassion seem to come naturally from Jesus for everybody else, but he gives no quarter to those who are outwardly pious, particularly the Pharisees, who were considered the most devoutly religious people of his day. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, which is not a friendly term. So why is it if Jesus is, um, if Jesus is all about love and truth, why is he so difficult for these people? When Jesus warns humanity about judgment, that warning is usually directed at people who already know better. So, in coming back to Matthew 7, Matthew 7, 22, says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is not directed at lost people, but people who claim to be acting in the name of Jesus. And so if Jesus is 100% truth and 100% love, why isn't Jesus kinder in these interactions with these people who claim to be living and working in his name? And there's really only one explanation for it, and that is this. There is no love in pretending that hypocrisy is not a sin. And so if the institutional church starts to replace Christian kingdom, we say, well, you know, if human traditions replace the word of God, well, yeah, but if false teaching replaces the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, let's, let's not be too judgmental. When sinful attitudes or actions become commonplace, even in the church, we say, well, they're nice people. They mean well, and we love them. We don't want to hurt their feelings. Well, here's the truth. If we care about them, we will challenge them. We will stand up for them because love demands it. Paul says it's not our business to judge unbelievers. It's kind of a pointless endeavor. But believers we hold to account for the sake of the church and for the sake of the soul of the one that we judge. 
1 Corinthians 5.11, he says, But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Sounds kind of elitist, right? Kind of harsh. Particularly in light of the fact that Paul specifically says, don't dissociate yourself from unbelievers who commit the same sins. He says, hold those who claim to be in Christ to a standard of righteousness. Now, this is not a graceless standard. It's not, you better be perfect or, or, or I'm going to hold it against you. But it is a judgment against unrepentant sin in the body. Pursue that truth and even still, even still, do it because of love. Now, let me be the first to just say, that's easier said than done. I struggle to do that. I can only look to Jesus. And when we read these passages where Jesus talks about judgment, one of the things that, that we have to conclude is that Jesus is, in fact, the judge of the world, but desires the world's salvation. See, we're conditioned because of the way that uh, much of Western and modern Christianity has talked about judgment. We're conditioned to read judgment as a threat. Understand that for most of biblical history, the judgment of God was a welcome promise. It was an acknowledgement that the world is this unjust and deceptive and evil place, and it's about this yearning for God to come and set it all right again. And if creation is to be renewed, if evil is to be expelled, then judgment is a necessity. But we also recognize that be, to be judged by a righteous God is kind of a terrible frightening thing. But look, look, at, look at the scenario that we're given. If you have to be judged, you want a sympathetic judge, right? Can you have a more sympathetic judge than the guy who was just your defense attorney? The guy who's working so hard to get you off scot-free? The guy who wants nothing more than your salvation is also the guy who's going to judge you. In other words, your soul is yours to lose. If you lose your soul in this process, it's, it's, it's only because you chose not, not to trust the one who desires nothing more than to save it. The co court is completely biased in our favor. In light of judgment, then, it's really foolish not to listen and obey. But, even so, judgment is not a lever to compel discipleship. Now, some of you will think I'm kind of splitting hairs on this because the distinction is somewhat fine. Fearing hell 
is not the same thing as following Jesus. And Jesus' ministry is not a ministry of judgment. It's a ministry of declaration, of declaration of the gospel, the good news. Jesus doesn't say, repent now, for judgment is waiting. He says, repent now, change directions, because the kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. The primary difference between the salvation of Jesus and the judgment of Jesus is timing. When Jesus came to the world, he came to save it. When Jesus returns to the world, he will judge the world. But you know what that means for us. It means that we still exist in the era of salvation. And Jesus is saying to us, don't don't rush forward into the judgment phase. We're not there yet. We're still in the salvation phase. We're still in the part where I'm calling people to myself. We're still in the part where I'm sending you out to the world to let the world know that I just want them back. I just want them to know me and to be saved through me. We remain in that time. Judgment is not our job. The present mission of Jesus is our job. And the primary appeal of kingdom is the liberating truth and righteousness of the gospel. See, the world is deception and destruction, but the kingdom is truth and renewal. The world is immorality and injustice, but the kingdom is righteousness. And the really good news, the good news that Jesus himself proclaims, is that this kingdom is at hand. It is near. It is within reach. And we have been invited to enter it. See, regardless of where else you're coming from, regardless of what else you believe, judgment and death were inevitable. But Jesus is life and light.